Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 103 of Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemispherical, intergenerational podcast for forgotten fantastical film lovers, with me, Conrad, possibly adopting an adorable puppy in Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, giving vegan a try in Melbourne, Australia. We're electrified by sci-fi, horror and fantasy films because we love body-hopping serial killers interactive TV adventures, and mystical moist women with magical jewellery. Oh, hello, Dan. You had to say it. <laughs> I, I know I said it last episode, <laughs> but moist. Yes. <laughs> Makes another moist. appearance. It's the worst <laughs> word in the English language, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I'm good, Conrad. How are you? I'm very well, yes. I'm making the fatal mistake of going to, quote-unquote, look at puppies. Oh, that doesn't work, does it? Yeah, it's it's you, you can't deny a puppy. It's it's very difficult. It is very difficult. So, <laughs> and look at you trying out veganism. Is it just uh, for a week for a bit of fun? Or um, well, it's it's it's, it's more of a decision made by my wife. So I, I'm kind of uh, been okay. strung along. Um, but I mean, I'm enjoying <laughs> it so far. I, I don't know how. F- how strict we're going to go with the whole veganism thing. We still eat honey. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also, it's not really a rule for me, so I will occasionally eat meat. Um, but generally, at home, if we're cooking together, just, you know, making one meal is, is a lot easier than two separate dietary meals. So, yeah, yeah giving it a go, uh, experimenting with seitan. Yeah, it's fun. Ooh. Wow. It'd be really funny if Duncan manages to convert both of us. <laughs> yeah. He'll be I'm, so proud next time he oh, comes on. Yeah. I mean I don't yeah, I don't think it's 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 a strict thing for me. It's more of a well, it's just convenient with my wife. But um yeah. Giving yeah. it a go. Marvellous. Well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So Conrad, anything in the mailbag today? We do. We have a new review on Facebook. The best produced and most entertaining film review podcast I've heard. Original music, balanced criticism, and hosts from different countries and generations make this a must-listen show. And that's by one Melinda. Oh, wow. Someone we know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Melinda. But completely neutral. Thanks, Melinda. (laughs) (laughs) Wasn't prompted or anything. No, no. Money did not change hands. Uh, when we were asking people to name their favourite pre-moon landing science fiction movie, John Michael Rouse was first up with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it it's worth reminding everybody that was before the moon landing and it's a stunning visual achievement and a technical masterpiece for its time, says mm. Mr. Rouse, and very right he is. James Aronson says, This Island Earth, mainly for the last 20 minutes or so. Oh, I, I've... 
I've never heard of that movie. Mm. I believe it's one of the films that Ethan Hawke is watching in Explorers. Oh, right. Okay. TV. So right. There you go. On Lady in the Water, Wicked Person said, I was thinking to myself, oh, I've seen this one. But nope, that was The Shape of Water. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a very, very different movie, isn't it? I mean... It's a very different movie. It's an entity coming from the water, so it's kind of similar. It is. Yeah, at least Paul Giamatti does not have sex with Bryce Dallas Howard in a bath. (laughs) Oh, that would have made the movie so much worse. It would have been over, let's face it. Yeah. When we ask people to name their favourite Shyamalan guilty pleasures, so to speak, their favourite films from the slump in the middle... Uh, Two Cents Toys said, I only saw it once. I will, however, ardently defend the village. Mm, I still still yet to see that movie. I will uh, endeavour mm. to watch it this year. Yeah, I would second that. I actually, I really, really like the village. I don't think that's part of the slump. I think mm. it's good. Okay. Beach Boy Nick said, I've got a fondness for the happening, although I'm not really sure why. Awful acting, ridiculous plot, <laughs> terrible ending, but somehow strangely watchable. Wow. Okay. Wow. I will uh, strongly disagree. Um, that movie is awful. <laughs> you see, I love watching it, but with this concept that the two lead characters have learning difficulties. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's probably not politically correct at all, is it? Oh, dear. But they certainly act like it. Mm. (laughs) Definitely do. (laughs) They do. (laughs) And Luis Saavedra, talking about Lady in the Water, said, It's not that bad, I think. I enjoyed some parts of it. The happening is way badder. So (laughs) there's someone who agrees. Oh, yes. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Lady in the Water... Is, is a is a bad movie and production wise it's 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 great it's a very very mm. very competent movie um just yeah you know we talked about it story's not that great it's not no and uh, ruling on that very succinctly as always is surge of cold crash pictures oh, hello. hello surge hello surge and he says okay i was all set to tear it to pieces but the latest episode of movie oubliette got me to admit the score acting and production design are all excellent so it's mostly just a lesson in how not to script metafiction or yes. stunt cast yourself in the most self-indulgent role mm-hmm. <laughs> yep yep completely agree yes indeed But yes, thanks for messaging and replying and commenting and emailing. We've loved hearing from you as always. Yes, we love love all your messages. So, of course, Conrad, uh, what are we doing today? Well, I think our guest should tell us that. Our guest today is the co-founder of Retro Blasting, the best video channel deconstructing 80s pop culture from vintage toys, classic TV, film and cartoons, and co-host of the Dreamland podcast, which was very, very good. Very, very good. And it's it's about to get much, much worse, but never mind. Every <laughs> Gen X's favourite place to hang out. Yes, it's Melinda Mock. Hello, Melinda. Hello, Hello guys. Hi. (laughs) It's wonderful to be here. It's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Uh, Preparing for Iconicon, which is coming up at the end of June, beginning of July, as many of your audience probably already know. And uh, yeah, it's been been quite hectic, but exciting. 
Mm. It is exciting. We've got some great things lined up. Absolutely. Yes, we do. Yeah, can't wait. Mm. And it's not that far. I looked at the calendar and suddenly realised June is upon us. It's really <laughs> it's like, terrifying, uh-huh. isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's really terrifying. But I, I think that uh, we've got some great celebrity guests, which I'm excited about, uh, or just all kinds of different things this year. So going to be fun. Mm. It's going to be great fun. Looking forward to it. For sure. So... Would you like to be one of the very, very few guests who <laughs> ventures into the oubliette to fetch a movie? Oh, wow. Well, I'm so honored that I get to, to see this oubliette. I, I can't wait. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let me uh, just limp on over to the oubliette and uh, see what we have in there today. Wow. It smells like the electric chair in here. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> That's odd. Oh, there's a really old-looking TV on. Wait. Whoa! I'm being pulled through a bunch of grainy war footage. Is this World War II? Oh, now I think I'm in an episode of Roseanne. Oh, (laughs) that's even worse. Wait, wait. I see a remote control sitting on top of a VHS tape. Let me see if, uh... Okay, yeah, that works. That was quite a ride, you guys. It's kind of like riding lightning. Wow. <laughs> I got our movie. <laughs> and on vintage VHS, that's great. Of course. I mean, that's the best visuals, you know, for this particular movie. <laughs> I think that's what you want. Mm. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. So what is it? What have you found? So we have Shocker, a very, very American horror film from 1989, written and directed <laughs> by Wes Craven and starring Michael Murphy Peter Berg, Kemi Cooper, and Mitch Pileggi. The X-Files man himself. Mm -hmm. So what happens in this movie? Shocker is the story of Jonathan Parker, a college football star who dreams about the murders of his foster mother and siblings, only to discover that he was actually witnessing the murders in real time. He identifies the killer, Horace Pinker, to the police, and they track him to his TV repair shop where he narrowly escapes. This leads Pinker to seek payback by brutally murdering Jonathan's live-in girlfriend, Allison. After the police casually let him discover the horrific murder scene, (laughs) Jonathan is compelled to use his dream link with the killer to track him down, and his father, Lieutenant Don Parker, finally arrests him. After a Chucky-esque black magic ritual in his prison cell, Pinker is taken to the electric chair where he reveals he is Jonathan's bio-dad just before he is electrocuted. However, this serves to grant him the power to leap from body to body using electricity as he continues his killing spree and seeks even more revenge. Tracking him becomes even more difficult after he discovers he can move into the power grid. Luckily, Jonathan has the help of his illogically loyal football teammates and even the ghost of his dead but still pretty girlfriend and her magic necklace. Will they stop Pinker before he manages to leap into the airwaves and go primetime? Sounds pretty exciting, guys. It does. Doesn't it just? Let's find out more. Okay, we are back to talk about Wes Craven's 1989 Shocker. So the cover I got, which is really strange, doesn't seem to represent 
the movie at all, the DVD cover. Oh, dear. It's got an image of what looks like a girl that doesn't seem to be in the movie at all. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I have never seen that. Very strange. Anyway, uh, Melinda, you have graciously presented a shocker to us. What, what is your history with this movie? Um, why did you choose it? Well, first of all, I'd like to apologize for choosing this movie. <laughs> uh, no, well, so... I, of course, was a metalhead back in the 80s, and this movie was marketed uh, heavily with the soundtrack, and Uh. my very favorite band, Megadeth, was the headliner of the soundtrack. And Uh. so that is why I was there in the theater when this movie came out back in 89. Right. Also had it on VHS and watched it a lot. (laughs) Never had a problem with it back then. Like, Yeah. (laughs) I mean... I guess that's the difference between being a teenager and being an adult. But uh, (laughs) this was my first time seeing it again Mm. since the 90s, probably since about 93. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So this is going to be one of those fascinating things where someone revisits one of their pleasures of the past to see whether it holds up. Mm. And it's pretty much the same situation for me. I had this, I didn't see it in theatres. I wasn't that excited about it. Um, (laughs) You're a little smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) I had it on VHS. I had the X rental. So I had the big box version of Shocker because I clearly could not wait. (laughs) And I can't quite tell you why, but I did used to watch it a lot, possibly even more than Nightmare on Elm Street. Same. Whereas Dan... I think you're a shocker virgin, aren't you? That sounds really bad. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, uh, that sounds questionable. Uh, yes, I am, uh, dare I say it, a shocker virgin. I'm not a huge Wes Craven fan. Like, I mean, I obviously love Nightmare on Elm Street. I think the first movie is the best one. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't like his, his new nightmares. I thought that was terrible. Scream, obviously, really good. We've covered The Serpent and the Rainbow, which we did not like very much. It was interesting to watch another sort of non-revered Wes Craven. This movie felt very repackaged. Like I felt like it was just Nightmare on Elm Street repackaged. Just all the elements of Nightmare on Elm Street just given to us in this new MTV 80s hair metal soundtrack (laughs) movie. And I don't know, like, can a director plagiarize himself? Is that a thing? Clearly it is. Yeah. I think he was trying to create a new franchise. Sure. Because, of course, he lost control over Freddy Krueger. And I don't think he was particularly happy with the direction that it took. He was involved in three as a writer. But this movie really is very obvious. I tried to note down all the times it was alarmingly similar and it kicks off with the killer preparing in his workshop over the opening title sequence so that's the same except in this case instead of creating his signature weapon he's just repairing tvs yeah badly solder everywhere yeah (laughs) all over his shoes it's a mess um we have a cameo from heather langenkamp as a dead body Mm. (laughs) during the opening title were you able to recognize her no I only know that because I listened to the commentary track. Yeah. She's basically on a stretcher. You can kind of see her face, but it looks like an old Faces of Death website quality. Like you just can't really (laughs) see her. So, yeah. So there's that. There's a whole sequence where Jonathan asks his bizarrely loyal football friends to wake him up at a certain point. Hmm. We also have 
a scene where he pulls something out of the dream into the physical world. He lays a trap for the villain that will pull him into a vulnerable situation out of his safe zone in an alternative reality. There is um, a transforming everyday object. In Nightmare on Elm Street, it's the telephone. In this movie, it's a Barker lounge. Ah, yes, the vibomatic. <laughs> the vibomatic. I mean, it's set up so many times, you know something's going to happen in the vibomatic. Mm. So, yeah, th- those were just a few of the ones I noted down, but it really is quite similar. There's a lot of dreamy stuff going on in this movie. Yeah. I also felt that the Horace Pinker character was very similar to Freddy Krueger as well. Just very kind of maniacal and unpredictable and a little bit crazy. So Wes Craven has a really great commentary track on the special edition version, I think is what it's called, of the Blu-ray that came out a few years back. And uh, he does talk about how it is very deliberate that he's basically trying to reboot or recreate Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger in particular. And there's this really interesting sort of backstory of Alive Pictures, which was formed by Shep Gordon, who is Alice Cooper's manager. And he formed this entity which does films they also do some music stuff they even do some culinary things it's this weird company that you can't find a lot of information about on the internet but they apparently had started by giving john carpenter a four movie deal of which he made two of them one being they live and the other being prince of darkness which we've covered yeah yes Mm, yeah mm. yeah And I think then Carpenter backed out, and that's when Wes Craven did this movie and People Under the Stairs. Mm. And it basically gave him a whole lot more autonomy with a lot less intrusion from the studio. And so that was really his angle at coming at doing this Freddy Krueger thing again, but having more control over it. Now, ultimately, why he didn't try to do a completely new type of movie, I don't know. Because, like you said, there's a lot of similarity not only between plot points and plot beats, but just the whole idea of using symbolism and dreams and all of that kind of stuff. Although you can see that unlike his early work, Wes is moving a lot more toward the comedy side, which he will go hard into in the 90s. Right, yeah. I mean, this does seem on the way to Scream. Like, it is quite meta. It is very of the time. It's it's very... MTV generation. It's a different tone of movie, isn't it? Nightmare on Elm Street was terrifying for a whole generation. Mm. I knew really sort of tough guys who were reduced to a puddle of abject fear watching Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. I don't think Shocker would have the same effect on anyone. It's gruesome here and there. There are some gruesome bodily harm effects in it. It could have been more gruesome, I think. I think it suffered from the whole studio, I mean, trying to get the R rating. Uh, The same thing with Intruder. Mm. It could have been more gruesome. It certainly was initially. You know, I think they went back to the MBAA like 13 times. I read because of them having to cut out gore. Mm, yeah. yeah, you can see remnants of yeah. it. Like there's a moment where Pinker bites off a prison guard's fingers and says "finger licking good" or something along those lines. Yeah, now you don't actually see him spit them out, and you don't hear it either. You just see them there in a wide shot after the fact, so you can tell that bits have been removed from this movie. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The one-liners, they were trying really, really hard to sort of create all of these catchphrases that kind of didn't work. 
they just felt like catchphrases. Even the No More Mr. Nice Guy and then having the song No More Mr. Nice Guy playing over it. Yeah. What does that even mean? When was the killer ever a nice guy? Yeah, I didn't get that. <laughs> and I honestly don't understand Wes's transition from some of his early work into, like, I'm not a huge fan of, like, once he gets into the 90s, like, I unlike you, I really hate Scream. Right. Because I feel like it's making fun of people who like horror movies, which is me. Yeah, <laughs> true. So, so I feel like, I almost wonder if Wes Craven was sort of having a bad attitude about like where they took the character he created and he just leaned heavily into it, almost with a sarcastic tone. Like that's how I've always taken this period in his career. Yeah. Mm. It's not a bad shout because he was trying to direct other genres, wasn't he? Didn't he do one of those inspiring music yeah. teacher in school movies? I didn't realize he did that. Yeah, Music of the Heart. Was that nineties or early two thousands movie? <laughs> With Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. an inspirational <laughs> <laughs> biopic. It's like, yeah. Oh, okay, Wiz, okay. <laughs> See, I couldn't figure out for a long time watching this movie, I couldn't figure out what tone he was going for. Ah, oh, because. Polar opposite tones. I know. The first act <laughs> where Horace is a serial killer, very much of the physical world. I actually found that quite terrifying. And, Me too. Yeah. And Peter Berg having predictive dreams and finding his adoptive family massacred. And I thought, oh, this is actually really good. Mm-hmm. But then once you start getting into the body swapping and the eight-year-old girls with pink <laughs> pearls yeah. dragging their leg through a park, swearing like a fisherman. <laughs> it's, it's like, and on the commentary track, you just hear Wes chuckle and go, yeah, maybe I was being a bit whimsical here. It's like, y- you think? I know. Like, I really enjoyed listening to Wes re-watching his movie, much like I had just re-watched his movie from such a long time ago. And he's having the same reaction as me, but like obviously way more so. And being like, mm. oh, like there's a scene where Horace Pinker is in his prison cell about to go to the electric chair and he's surrounded by black candles, which I have to wonder how someone could get those mm. in a prison. Mm. Like... I'm just imagining like ordering that. But anyway, he, and he gets the TV and not only just the TV, but like jumper cables or something. Yeah, I yeah. know. They say, oh, his last request was a TV. Fine. But when did he ask for jump cables? And mm. black candles. And why did you give them to him? Yeah, then? exactly. <laughs> but he's there doing his whole Chucky. It really reminds me of Chucky so much. It really um, does. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then these big lips come out of the TV and say, you got it, or something like that. And yeah, yeah, you got it, baby. Yeah, you got it, baby. That's what it is. And I swear to God, it just reminded me of Cool World for some reason. Right. Oh, I haven't seen oh, that. Oh, my God. It's something else. But anyway, it's very, like, adult, but also, like, cartoony. That's where it starts skewing into the, like, Warner Brothers Looney Tunes mm. realm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think why it doesn't work is because you just didn't see any of that for the first act. They didn't allude to all of this weird 
black magic turning into energy, electricity. So when it happens, it's just like, what the hell is going on right now? And it just rips the tension out of the movie. Well, luckily they don't explain it at all. So I know they don't. They don't. And there's like no rules to the situation. It just no. it seems yeah. to just be unfolding and morphing into whatever it turns out until the final act, which is just like, I just got to the point where I just give up. <laughs> I, I don't get what's going on. How did they get into the TV? This is insane. But for me, the, the movie felt like three different types of movies. So the first one, like you said, Conrad, like the real world, but with kind of a psychic, telepathic element, similar to the Dead Zone and the Fury. Uh, it also has elements of like a serial killer movie, like sort of finding a serial killer like Zodiac and, and Summer of Sam and Silence of the Lambs. But then it goes into the supernatural, child's play, Nightmare on Elm Street. Like similar to movies like Leprechaun and Idle Hands, the really kooky yeah. horror, black comedy type movies. And it just lost me at that point. You yeah. have to give a shout out to Terror Vision as well. I haven't seen oh. Terror Vision. So Terror Vision specifically, very comedic and also a commentary on the influence of television in American life. Right. Which I feel like is a part of this movie as well. He's doing a lot, and I think that it would have been really helpful if someone had made him focus more. Yeah. Because he's talking about, in the commentary track, he did give a lot of thought to a lot of these things. So he's talking about things like exploring something beyond the dream world and the world of electromagnetic impulses and the neural network of the modern world. Like these are all things that he's talking about in his director's commentary. Right, right. And how television connects everyone and how powerful it is. And but I didn't get that though. Like no one else was no. watching television. If they had lots of shots of people constantly watching television, then that theme would come across. But Yes, I agree. Yeah. I didn't I didn't get that at all. It just felt like three different movies kind of jam-packed into this one movie that and none of the parts kind of worked like i would have been fine watching those three different movies sure. as singular movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah like if, if you're gonna go completely whimsical kooky goofy then have it all the way through don't have a mopey teenager that's just always sad and then his whole family gets killed and his girlfriend gets killed it seems just totally imbalanced yeah. i also think that if the mandate is you have to use all these heavy metal bands right and that's going to be a big part of the movie then it should be part of the movie as well yeah so exactly. like instead of him being a jock which in the 80s jocks hated metal and they hated metalheads mm. so it's very jarring from that point of view yes it would have made more sense to have him be more of a a metalhead sort of guy exactly. that didn't fit in with society. And so like, then it would have felt more organic to have that music in the mm. movie because it would have sounded like it wasn't just force on top of it. But as it is, it's just like, there's a lot of things that are working against each other at every step of the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a really, really good point. And there are no rules. I need <laughs> rules on my supernatural serial killers. Mm. I need to understand what they can do and what they can't do. So Horace can possess people through electricity, usually by touch, sometimes just through inanimate objects. And for some reason, they inherit his physical limp, yeah. even though the body he's in 
doesn't have the limp, so I don't know why that's happening. But he also inherits the limitations of the body he's in. So the first guy he goes into is overweight and also injured and not mm. collapses, so he doesn't get very far with that one. And then later on, he goes into Jonathan's adoptive father, and the father fakes a heart attack, which somehow Horace believes, even though he can feel the same things as, mm. or maybe not. I don't understand. I was, yeah, I was confused. And he fights Jonathan at one point and he's touching him. So you think, why doesn't he just go into Jonathan and throw himself off a bridge? Yeah. I thought that's what was going to happen. That'd do it. I assume it's because he wants to torture him. He wants to drag it out yeah. but yeah you're right it doesn't none of these things are well defined at all no. yeah and even in the final scene where he tricks him to go into the television onto a channel that is filmed in his bedroom or in his house and he traps him i didn't really understand how that even worked how did he trap him I, I don't know. And he had the remote. Yeah, and that whole thing with the remote. The remote. Which, you know, I mean, oh, I can pause him because you can pause live TV in 1989. <laughs> that makes sense. But when he's flinging him around the room, like it's a wand or something, <laughs> is that how remotes work? Not that I'm aware of. I don't of. think so. Well, again, it would have made also more sense if it was a like he had recorded him on TV. Yeah. Because like you're saying, Conrad, you can't use a remote like fast forward and pause on live TV. You can certainly turn the volume down and turn it off. That's true. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. It, there's not a lot of thought processes. So like with the limp, I'm just looking at it from a medical perspective and I'm going, okay, so he got shot through the knee, but that wouldn't cause that. Yeah, right. Specifically. <laughs> I feel like, you know, if somebody could have workshopped this with Wes, they could have probably sold it like this. Like if he had had some sort of issue where he had an amputated leg, so he had like phantom limb pain or phantom limb. Right. Like so that that gets into what Wes loves, right? Which is the mind and the subconscious and how it all works together with the human body. He loves that stuff. Mm. But it's like, I don't think it works that way with just like a knee injury. No. <laughs> like, no. I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. And then when you go to the practicalities of the story... Not a lot of that makes much sense either. I mean, we're introduced, we're barely introduced to characters that we, or we're not even introduced at all. Like his family gets killed and I didn't even know it was his family until after <laughs> it happened. <laughs> like, who true. are these people? Yeah. And then he, he's suddenly very, very sad and his dad doesn't seem to be phased at all. Just some strange reactions from characters. The funny thing about the dad is that the dad seems to be really hooked up on procedure, but he's investigating the serial killer who killed his entire family. Is that normal? Well, I, I think... Know. I wouldn't have thought so. <laughs> it, it doesn't seem really clear in the movie, but I believe that Horace kills the family because he was already being investigated by sure. the dad. Yeah. And then That's he true. just kept it as his case. But the father's relationship with the son is very changeable. So for the most part, it seems very antagonistic. And Wes talks about this movie is similar to Nightmare on Elm Street, like in the sense that Nancy and her mother have this whole debate and this mm, is a father and true. son instead of a mother and daughter. And you have a cop dad, it's very similar also to Nightmare on Elm Street. 
But you have these parents who are not likable. And Wes talks about having kind of a very difficult relationship with a somewhat abusive or scary father, Mm. which is clear in a lot of his films. And a mother who didn't really like to tell the truth because she was trying to protect him. So she would never just come out and tell him what was going on. And so you can see that play out in both Nightmare and this movie. Mm. And it's really frustrating because you're sitting there going, I don't really like the dad. But then there's that scene where they're hanging off the tower and they're acting like they love each other and they're so close and there's no Mm. establishment of that whatsoever in the film. Yeah, I felt like that was pretty much the way with all the characters. Uh, He had some sort of rapport with his teammates and his coach, but you didn't really see it. The only character I think that worked in terms of like you know, feeling anything for was Allison, like his girlfriend. He, she mm-hmm. just seemed to be very attached and very supportive. And, and you did see the love and chemistry between them. And so when she was killed off, I was really shocked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she doesn't get a whole lot other than being his girlfriend as a character. I know, I know, <laughs> that's true, yeah. But, I mean, they she dies pretty early. So, like, once you're a ghost, like, I don't know how you have much going on in your life. But, you know, he's a football star and he's got, you know, all of this stuff around him. And she doesn't seem to have a whole lot of an identity other than just being this really supportive, yeah. virginal-looking, although clearly not a virgin because she, I guess she lives with him. And Yeah, but they've never slept together. She says this right at the mm, beginning. She does, yeah. But they literally sleep together. I mean, yeah, yeah. but fully clothed. She's taking a bath right there. I know. Mm. And the scene is introduced with him grunting. And then when it pans across, she's naked in the bath and he's working out, probably working off a lot of sexual frustration. Right? She's like, she won't sleep with him, but she'll be naked in the bath with the door open. Yeah. Mm. There's a tease Mm. and then there's a tease. That waterbed moving around. Yeah. Yeah. They're college students. He has his own home, but they're not sleeping together, apparently. Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't buy it, movie. I don't buy it. It's pretty amazing, but she does wear all white, and she's very breathy when she's a ghost. I I don't know. I mean, it's very cliche, but I did think that worked. I mean, it didn't make any sense story-wise with ghosts, and then (laughs) then all the other dead people come back as zombie ghosts at the end. Yes. The necklace didn't make any sense. Like, why did that have power? Was it the love? It's the love. It had power? It's the love has the power. (laughs) It's like in the song, we will have the power. Anyway. I thought she was a care bear because at one point she sort of fires love out of her chest and repels Pinker. (laughs) Yeah, that's... I, like, had to put my head down during that scene. I was like, oh, Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, can we talk about Pinker as a villain or serial killer? Like, did he work? Because I have noticed with the very few Wes Craven movies that I've watched that Wes Craven really likes to write killers that love killing. Mm -hmm. They have immense joy out of killing with Freddy Krueger and and Ghostface in Scream. Like, they just have a – there's a lot of glee involved. Find your passion. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Does that work in this movie? Does Horace Pinker work? I don't think so. I think he does. Like, I think that probably the best part of this movie for me is him. I think he does a great job acting the role. He's over the top, but I think that's what he's being directed to do. And I mm. maybe it's just because I really enjoy seeing him 
And it developed into a whole different level of enjoyment because I grew to love him in The X-Files and he has a completely different type of character in that show. Going back and watching this movie is like, oh, wow. Like, (laughs) it's so funny to watch him be both of those things. And he's just like, I think he does a great job. But I mean, I can see why someone would just be like, what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think Mitch Pileggi is the best thing in the movie because he does just go for it. He's chewing the scenery, he's jumping up and down, he's quipping, he's spitting blood out. (laughs) He's full of glee. But crucially, other than act one, I do not find him frightening. No. Yeah, I mean, it really does amp up the goofy level when he starts having the supernatural powers. I, For me, I found him too similar to Freddy Krueger, like just a little bit kooky and weird. And, and the fact when he does have powers, you know, strange things start to happen exactly like Nightmare on Elm Street. So I thought the character was too similar. Mm. And I did find a lot of similarities between him and, and Chucky. Yeah. Very, very similar, just in different bodies. I I feel like he's a lot more like Chucky than Freddy, personally. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. I kind of enjoyed the body swap stuff. Mm. I kind of wanted more of that. Yeah. I thought the actors that were playing him, you know, possessing their bodies were very good. I mean, the yeah. girl, the little girl was actually yeah. Yeah. <laughs> surprisingly good. And did you laugh out loud when she started being him yeah because like, i laughed out loud <laughs> and i think i laughed out loud in the theater which is what they wanted like i think that was the goal mm, well yeah you, sure. you can't have a little girl with like <laughs> pastels and pearls stand up into frames spit on a dying man and limp away <laughs> and not expect people to laugh it's hilarious it is, it is. hilarious absolutely it's hilarious so great but yeah not scary no in terms of performances what did people think about peter berg our leading man, uh, now a famous director, directing things like Battleship and Deepwater Horizon. What did you think of him? He's a bit mopey. I mean, he has good reason. I mean, his whole family is murdered and his girlfriend. So, I mean, I don't know. There's the acting, which is a little underwhelming. Sure. I think certain types of scenes work better with his acting abilities. So, I think the first third of the movie. He doesn't do a bad job. I think he's okay. But once it gets into the camp and the crazy, wacky stuff, I don't Mm. really buy him. He's got a very flat affect. And so it's hard for him to sell that. I think it's just a tonal imbalance again. Like it felt like he was in a different movie. And then you've got Horace Pinker just, you know, winking and quipping. And it just doesn't, it doesn't match, I think. No, I think you're right. The interesting thing is if he tried to match Horace in terms of the mode of performance and camped it up a little bit more, slasher movies like this that have a male central character, if you think of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Mm -hmm. they suddenly become the final girl, Mm -hmm. but a boy. Mm. It's fascinating. I'd love to do a little bit of analysis of what happens when it's a man in the central role in these movies, because it rarely happens. And when it does, in terms of gender roles, it's quite fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I was thinking about that because I was trying to read about like other people's reactions and why the movie didn't resonate with people before I watched it. And then I saw why it didn't resonate with people. But it just sort of (laughs) seems like people got used to this final girl thing, which I feel like I never thought about that 
as a girl watching a lot of horror movie stuff, like in the 80s, I just didn't really think about how it's all girls. But mm. that's probably why it resonated so much with me. Mm. But I loved this movie. I just think that his character is not nearly as bright as Nancy. Like Nancy is in Nightmare on Elm Street, very sharp. She very quickly figures out what's going on. No one believes her. Mm. But she immediately, when she starts being in a weird situation, she's like, oh my God, I'm dreaming. Oh my God, where's Freddy? Mm. How am I going to defeat him? And she does it yeah. like maybe it's not even halfway through the movie when she does that. Whereas this guy, I mean, there are scenes where I'm like, oh my God, are you challenged? Like, why are yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. So for example, like when he's in his house and there's a knock at the door and he's packing and he's like, do-de-do and the phone was ringing and his dad's leaving him a message and he's just sort of not listening to it. And the dad on the answering machine is telling him, oh, this deputy of mine has disappeared from the hospital. Mm. No one knows where he is. And he looks through the thing in the door and he's like, oh, there's the guy, the, yeah. the mm. cop that just got in the horrible car accident that my dad's talking about right now. Mm. And instead of just pretending he's not home and trying to watch him, he's like, is that you? It's like, <laughs> what are you doing? What are, shut up. Yeah. And then the guy shoots him and he's just like running and he he's trying to reason with a guy who's pointing a gun at him. And I'm like, are you from America? You know, you just run. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the scene where he's trying to look for the necklace in the lake as well, and he's like, I need a mask, and he, he, he jumps in the lake, like, oh, I don't have a mask, and he jumps out of the lake. Like, what, what, what's happening right now? Like, that what, what was is... insane. Yeah, and then he's frightened of his girlfriend again, <laughs> even though they've been chatting for, like, previous scenes, but now she's in the water floating around. All of a sudden, she's scary again. Well, yeah. I mean, dead bodies are a lot worse when they're in the water. I yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> now it's time for random trivia so melinda what fascinating pieces of trivia did you discover at the bottom of a lake today <laughs> well uh for one i have to give a little shout out to headbangers ball from halloween of 1989 uh where Mitch Pileggi actually appeared. It was all hosted by Alice Cooper, Dave Mustaine from Megadeth, and the guys from Dangerous Toys, and even Iggy Pop all came uh, to sort of promote the movie. And it's a great little piece of nostalgia. I found a clip of it on YouTube earlier, and we were watching it. It has all the commercials from 1989 as well. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so much fun. I watched it in real time back in the day. Uh, so I have fond memories of that. And then the other little piece of trivia is that the little girl in the park uh, is played by an actress named Lindsay Parker. Uh, and she was about, I'm not sure how old she was in the movie, but um, she was also Carrie in Flowers in the Attic from 1987. So for any of you V.C. Andrews fans out there, she was also in that very highly disturbing film, who, which is very inappropriate for children as well. So there you go. Right. I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> no, me neither. Maybe we should cover it. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't. It's just filled with incest. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, Greg. <laughs> and that's our trivia. Yes. I did want to ask you, Melinda, because oh God. so so my <laughs> wife has this sort of the wife test, like if movies pass the wife test, Ooh. and often it's movies where it's a lot of men and no woman, and this is also the case here. There are a lot of men 
a lot of male characters. So for you, like, what attracted you to, to this movie apart from, you know, the soundtrack? Like, why did you like this? Because for my wife, she just turned off. The thing that I remember about this movie was the tragic love part of it, which is I am a huge sucker for tragic love, like Romeo and Juliet stuff where somebody dies. Mm-hmm. And so the scene where Horace Pinker kills her in the bathroom where the Jonathan guy lives, mm. and when he comes in and finds her body and there's just blood everywhere, mm. and he has that reaction scene, mm. that like left this wonderful little photographic imprint in my head that I've actually done several paintings like when I was an art student that were sort of around that concept of someone finding their loved one dead in a bathtub and, Mm -hmm. you know, that super dark, gothy type thing. And so that's kind of what attracted me to the movie and like everything about like their love being the pure, wonderful thing that brings her back from the dead and all of that just Mm. weathering heights, high drama stuff. But that's not when you rewatch it now or when I rewatch it now, that is not what really stands out in the movie. It just seems horribly juxtaposed against Looney Tunes stuff and a crime drama. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like I think the movie would have worked way better if Horace wasn't kooky and wacky Mm -hmm. like if he was just a very serious manipulative controlled character Mm -hmm. i think it would have been a quite a terrifying movie and then having to love weird ghost scenes i think that would have worked Mm -hmm. but yeah having body swaps and electric powers and then (laughs) (laughs) jumping into tvs (laughs) yeah i don't know whether that worked so We've talked about the soundtrack briefly. Melinda, take us on a tour of this wonderful soundtrack album (laughs) and the supergroup who came together to make it possible. Oh, God. I don't know if I could say it without laughing. So there's this guy, Desmond Child, who produced Alice Cooper's album Trash, which came out around that same time. It was a huge hit. And so Shep Gordon, who is Alice Cooper's manager and owns Alive Films, brought him in to be part of this whole thing as well. And so he pulled his strings because he's a big music industry guy. He's worked with tons of different kinds of people. Hmm. And he was like thumbing through the catalog and going, oh, Megadeth, let's pull them in. And because Megadeth had toured with Alice Cooper previously. And Hmm. there was like a new band that was called Dangerous Toys. And they have one of the better songs on the album. Mm -hmm. But they formed this super group picking and choosing. So they had people like Paul Stanley from Kiss, Desmond Child himself sings on one of the songs. Alice Cooper sings as part of this. Tommy Lee is the drummer uh, from Wantley Crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they formed this sort of band that only made two songs, and it's, they're called... <laughs> they're called... <laughs> the Dudes of Wrath. <laughs> oh, come on. No. And... Like they do two songs on the album and the one song is sort of the title track and it's not bad. It's okay. And then the second song is called Shock Dance, which is the one that Alice is on. But it's really bad. Like it's like a rap. (laughs) I mean, it's unfortunate, guys. Like I I don't know if you listened to it, but it's rough. I did. I listened to the whole soundtrack album. Oh wow. I was like (laughs) blushing because I was imagining Conrad listening to it and thinking that I liked it, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> but, um, but dudes of wrath, I mean, seriously. <laughs> dudes is too laid back to be wrathful. It's such, you know, <laughs> the gentleman of terror, you know. It just doesn't work. It's so funny because, like, they brought in Megadeth and they're covering an Alice Cooper song, No More Mr. Nice Guy. Megadeth was in between like their big lineup change. So they only had really two of their members with sort of an optional new third. Uh, they had a new drummer that they had just hired who played on their next album. But it's like this whole thing. Dave Mustaine, the lead singer of Megadeth, was so strung out on drugs that he couldn't even play guitar in the music video. Wow. The music video being done by Penelope Spheris, who had just done the decline of Western civilization with them in it, as well as she had done the movie Dudes, which is dudes of wrath dudes ah. anyway it's all like connected in this like weird way yeah so anyway it's not great it's hair metal and it's like kind of the end of metal kind of like i also see this time period as the last dregs of the best horror movies as well like mm. i don't like 90s horror at all sure. and i hate 90s metal so they're both kind of like their last death gasps and so that's what this feels like mm. on both fronts. <laughs> yeah, I, I was just reminded of Ghosts of Mars and uh, <laughs> Maximum Overdrive, where like they get rock bands or metal bands in, and they just don't know how to score a movie. No, it just didn't add tension at all. Like there were lots of scenes in this where it didn't add anything. It just made it sound cool. Yeah, or very moody, ominous swells, which I think works. Or it sounds like they're just throwing all the instruments down a flight of stairs. It just sounds, <laughs> it's just a cacophony of like percussion and every instrument playing all at once. And it kind of made it comical. Yeah, it's William Goldstein's electronic score. William Goldstein being the man behind the score for the kids from fame. Right. It's so bad. It is the worst part of this movie to me yeah. is the constant every key on a keyboard being hit yeah. mm. at the same time yeah. for the horror jump scare beats. And there's an interesting interview with him on that Blu-ray. And he talks about how he had met Wes working on the Twilight Zone episode, the new the new Twilight Zones that came out in the 80s. Oh, yeah. And uh, Wes really liked his more electronic approach. And so uh, it was a totally electronic score. Uh, he has released his score as an actual album. And when you listen to the album, Album, there are musical parts and like you're saying I think those parts that are actually scored work mm. but he had apparently talked to the sound effects people and tried to get an idea of what they were going to be using and he was going to work it into the score and that's why it is just pervasive I feel like you don't get a full scene certainly not an action scene without that horrific pounding of like it sounds yeah. like a little kid taking their hands and hitting every key on the keyboard at once <laughs> it's awful it's just like mm. oh yeah it is yes anyway but he is capable of writing melodies and counterpoints and everything else but when it comes to action and stingers i don't know he was confused and just rammed his head against the keyboard and then thought oh there you go <laughs> Job done. <laughs> so, I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. So this was like the last of a string of movies where a serial murderer gets electrocuted, um, executed, um, and then comes back. Mm -hmm. In 1987, prison. 1988, 
Destroyer, 1989, The Horror Show. None of those movies I have seen. Um, Watching this movie does remind me of another movie. Is it a Denzel Washington movie? No, it's not. It's called Ernest Goes to Prison. Uh, Those (laughs) Ernest movies. And he does get electrocuted and he comes back and suddenly he has lightning powers. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, Dan. oh, man. But that movie came out in 1990, so like a year after this movie. So Maybe uh, it's the unofficial sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, they wanted this to be a franchise. There you go. You know, so. Pee-wee pinker. Mm. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Award. Hey, hey, it's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite R-rating shocking parts of the film in a number of electrifying categories. <laughs> I know you already said it, Conrad, <laughs> but I had to. <laughs> it's Say hard it again. to avoid. <laughs> Best quote. Oh, it's got to be, come on, boy, let's take a ride in my Volkswagen. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I laughed so hard. <laughs> They were trying so hard with the catchphrases. Oh, it's crazy. And the eyes on the Barker Lounger. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> terrible. The one that always stays with me after watching the movie is Timothy Leary, the uh, psychedelic drug experimenter. And, and uh, Read up about his life if you want to go down a rabbit hole. He's mm-hmm. amazing. Playing the... Uh, evangelist preacher on TV slowly walking up to the screen and sort of urgently whispering check your perimeter check your perimeter (laughs) so great that is actually genuinely creepy I think it is yeah Yeah. one honorable mention is John Tesh who's uh, now a new age pianist appearing as the newsreader in the movie at one point quotes the uh, police detective detective Don as describing Pinker's lair as quote a hellhole filled with evil instruments strange symbols and hundreds of mummified cats <laughs> yeah, that's right wow. I mean, if it weren't if it weren't so hundreds. funny looking then it would have been somewhat upsetting well yeah. yes quite I mean, best hair or costume uh, well it, to me it's a tie between Allison's hair and every single scene that she's in which looked exactly like <laughs> my hair back at that time or oh, wow. the uh, TV reporter at the end he had this amazing poofy merm oh yeah right. remember like it was right. so 70s but it was like the late 80s I'm like why do you still have that hair mm. yeah anyway it's a merm but it's also a mullet as well uh-huh. isn't it it's, it's really impressive <laughs> yeah really impressive mm-hmm. yeah uh, for me, it's Allison's brown, poofy, floor-length skirt and white, poofy blouse with those <laughs> flowery panels down the front. And in the nighttime dream sequence, she adds a chunky-knit cardigan that's at least 10 sizes too large and a brown, wispy scarf that looks like an old pair of tights. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, my wife actually commented on the outfit and said, that's that's so trending right now. It really is. It probably is. I I remember seeing it and thinking, that's really cute. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I had shirts like that back then. Mm. More early 90s. Yeah, this was I like, think. I mean, it was on trend. Mm. Most 80s moment. Uh, well, for me, it's it's kind of either that wonderful phone that was right next to their bed. It was like this green house phone like that we used to mm. have oh, yeah. at our house. Or it's basically every single TV and remote control in that whole movie, particularly yeah. the one that's in their bedroom. Although there is a lovely one in that living room that you just mentioned a moment ago that was a projection TV, which I don't know if you guys remember those, but it actually has like a projector wow. in the front and it projects wow. on. So it, that's what that whole thing was. It looks like a little sled that sticks out in front of the TV screen and there's a projector like aimed up at the TV screen. So wow. very, very wow. 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those, wow. some of those remote controls were chunky as well. Oh yeah. Like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what I had written down as well. They're brown and silver and they look like a brick. <laughs> like an actual physical brick size remote mm -hmm. control. Yeah. It's, probably uh, weighed that much too. Favorite scene. My favorite scene is when Allison comes to him as a ghost the first time in the bath and the bathroom and the lighting is yeah. absolutely stunning and Surreal. she's covered in the blood and it just looks so oh god I, I don't know but the cinematography on that scene is just perfect i mean i love it i love the colors it's the one with the whole forest in the background yes behind her yes so surreal it's so gorgeous and the color of the blood i mean it doesn't look really like blood it really does have that red temper paint but there's something about the saturation levels that they achieved and mm. the cinematographer actually has a really good interview where he's talking about how all of the effects are still of course very practical in this movie it's the very end of the practical effects era I think mm. for, you know, we start going into, into digital in the 90s, obviously, but he did a great job of really capturing like this creepy, haunting, romantic, overly saturated look, especially in that scene. Just love it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. How about for you, Conrad? For me, it's got to be the park scene with all oh, the gosh. body <laughs> jumping <laughs> and the little girl and... It just seems to go on forever. It's in broad daylight. Mm. He's hopping from one body to the next. It's getting more and more ridiculous and funny. Jonathan's been shot about 18 times. <laughs> it's just, it, it's insane. It's imaginative. It's weird. It's funny. I, I thought it was an absolute hoot. I thought mm. it was great, that scene. Right, yeah, yeah. It, it really was kooky. To the sort of maximum level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most cliche moment. Uh, I would say it's it's either the killing in the shower thing or murder in the bathroom or falling into a waterbed, which is another thing that was in, <laughs> you know, Wes was really utilizing a lot of water symbolism in this movie, water trying to symbolize, I guess, there's a hidden depth beneath the surface of your consciousness and reality. There's the, this greater depth. Uh, oh, and so wow. He's, I did uh, not get that. <laughs> he's he's doing that's why there's a waterbed is the first thing i noticed in the room i was like ah oh, water and then she gets mm. killed in the bathroom and then she's in a lake and then there's rain in a scene which was apparently real rain and there's all this water symbolism in the Didn't movie like real rain <laughs> <laughs> but he falls like he falls into the bed and if you remember in nightmare on elm street johnny depp's character ends up in 
his waterbed as well. So yeah, that yeah, yeah the scene with the blood yep. spouting out of the bed. Like a um, yeah, and yeah. it's on TV. There's just footage of rain or something. Yeah, yeah, as well. Yep. He's watching the 24-hour ASMR rain channel. <laughs> I would watch yeah, that. I thought it was like, what are you watching? But then it ends up being like a dream sequence. So I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Like weird yeah. stuff It's happens, PBS. Like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> PBS on a low funding month. <laughs> uh, for me, the biggest cliche in this movie was the magical accessory, the necklace of power. Oh, yes. Most of, obviously, it's usually a crucifix versus vampires. But it also features in The Evil Dead, where it's possibly the ugliest necklace that's ever been conceived. Uh, Dragon Slayer in 81, which we've covered. And of course, the never-ending story and things like The Little Mermaid. So it's more of a fantasy trope than a horror trope, but mm. it, it has bled yeah. over into horror as well. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Best special, special effect. effect. My favorite special effect has got to be the, the biting the lip off. Uh, when the guy goes to give Horace oh. uh, CPR in the prison, and it's just this long rubbery thing, and it looks kind of fake, but it's also pretty horrific. And it was made yeah. even better because I was having dinner, and Michael came upstairs, and I was like, "Oh, there's no gory scenes coming up," <laughs> and we're sitting there eating dinner, and he's like, he just looks over at me like, "Really, Melinda? Really?" <laughs> <laughs> You weren't having ox tongue for Oh, dinner. dear, no. <laughs> Thank goodness. No. <laughs> uh, my favourite effect is Alison sliding through the foggy lake. Oh, yeah. I think that spooky worked. spooky with her arms outstretched. It does. It works really it's well. Great. She's basically just sitting in a chair that's on a dolly rig and being pulled along. Really? And apparently it took... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just a physical effect. She's just being pulled along in a chair. But apparently... Uh, it took multiple takes because they couldn't get it very smooth. It had, took a lot of practice to get it smooth. And sometimes it wobbled about all over the place and she fell off. Oh, wow. Wow. So is she in, she's not in a real lake, is, is she? It's just like a tank. Of I think that scene was not in a lake. They had a set, but there were scenes like where Peter Berg is actually in a lake that was very, very cold. And he got right. almost hypothermia from it. But oh, wow. you can tell like yeah. scenes where he's diving down and you can tell that the water is like only as tall as he is. So he's trying to make it look like he's diving, but it's not very convincing. Ah, okay. No, I do like it when his, his little feet keep yep. popping up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Favorite sound effect. Well, I don't know if it's a sound effect really, but it's the screeching strings that they constantly used at every jump scare and every... It sounded like every two minutes in the movie, it was like this. It's like, <laughs> yeah. stop, stop it. It's like started to scream at the TV, like during the movie, stop it with that sound. Yeah. It's not really my favorite, but it's certainly memorable. Mm, sure. Uh, sound effect for me. Uh, so after the big investigation of Horace Pinker's headquarters um, and everyone's killed, I did quite like it how the scene is punctuated by a, a train coming past. Like, mm. they must have mm. timed it perfectly with the trains. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it just really worked to sort of yeah, punctuate the end of that scene. Yeah, it's a complete accident. 
Yeah, is it? it was. No mm-hmm. way. It was. <laughs> yep. yep. Wow. It was a complete accident. And Wes Craven was jumping up and down saying, that's great. Print that take. And yeah. the DP said to him, Jacques Aitken turned to him and said, you'll never see it. <laughs> it's too dark. You won't be able to see it. But I can actually. I can. Remastered yeah. on the Blu-ray. You can, cl- you can clearly see it. Yeah, yeah you can. Most, Most funniest, funniest moment. This is really hard to come up with the funniest. I think... Uh, to me, the the one that is like the it's the first really funny thing that happens in the movie at Pinker's shop when he kills all the cops and there's just this one laying on top of his cop car with his eyes and his mouth completely wide open and his mouth like in yeah. the O face and his hand <laughs> is like gripping like and it's like that is not what a dead body looks like oh my god <laughs> mm. yeah all the dead bodies ridiculous ridiculous I mean. actually one one uh actor we haven't mentioned that's in this movie is ted Raimi is in this that's movie that's true oh yeah yep. and he does get killed yeah. and again his face is ridiculous um it is. i think this is the first ted Raimi film that is uh, that i've seen that isn't sam Raimi related yes like, i've only seen him in sam Raimi films hmm. that's very true yeah, that's, yeah, I even think the that's Spider-Man true. movies, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What, another thing I like about that scene with the dead body uh, on the car is when the father's sort of like saying to his son, stay out of this, this is my business, police business. He's he's just trying to call in for help on the radio and he's still holding the mouthpiece and the wire is the cut, wire. so it's just sort of <laughs> flapping around. <I> <laughs> It's so comical. And at that point, I'm thinking to myself, Wes, this is a comedy, isn't it? This, is, this isn't this is serious at all, is no. it? Yeah, it's like a little bookmark. It's sort of like, okay, from that moment on, everything is just complete yeah. cheddar. It's just... It is. Mm. And I think that's our Mooblies. Yes. Hi, this is Lotta Lusten, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, final verdicts. Should Wiz Craven's Shocker be freed from its digital tomb to be broadcast all over the world and be loved, or should it be flung around the room a bit and then plummet down into the oubliette to be lost forever? Melinda, you have gifted us this movie. Shocker. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, 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 a childhood favourite. <laughs> Would you recommend this to our listeners out there? Well, as much as I really want to like this movie, and back in the day I did like this movie a lot, uh, I love Wes Craven, I love a lot of the people who are involved, I love Mitch Pileggi, there's a lot of parts of this movie that I enjoy still, but I can't in good conscience recommend anyone watch it. It's, I mean, unless you just... (laughs) really want to kind of enjoy sort of a little bit of a train wreck of a movie. It doesn't really seem to accomplish what it's trying to accomplish. It feels very needlessly long for one thing. It Mm. it should be, it should have about 30 minutes chopped out of it. And it might have been like, maybe just chop off the front half, which I don't know, was probably one of the better parts, but then it would at least be just a comedy. It's very scattered. It doesn't really seem to know where it wants to land. And I don't think it does land. So mm. I would have to say, no, it needs to stay in the oubliette, sadly. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't really enjoy this movie. But I think it is. it, it was very, very much a product of its time, though. It felt very MTV generation, very 
um, 80s hair metal. Like, I think if I had grown up in the 80s and loved that type of music and watched this movie, I probably would have really, really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, it does feel like two types of movies joined together. You've got your serious psychic link serial killer movie, which I thought really worked. And then you've got the really weird, kooky, Chucky, Freddy Krueger, all sorts of weird stuff happening stuff. And together doesn't work at all. <laughs> really doesn't work at all. So no. I, I don't think I would recommend this movie. And, and, and it does feels just like Nightmare on Elm Street repackaged. Uh, slightly different characters, but pretty much the same movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Conrad. I would agree with both of you. You're quite right. I mean, there are elements of it that I love and that I enjoy, and all of the people involved did a great job, possibly not the people involved with the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> that might just be a, a taste thing. But uh, yeah, it just feels like a footnote to Freddy Krueger, to be honest. Mm. And it doesn't really pick a lane and stick to it. I mean, if you love Wes Craven and you just want a bit of freewheeling fun and have a few beers and watch a movie, then yeah, maybe. I but felt yeah, I, I felt can't... like a, a late night drive-in movie. Yes, like yeah. the sort of. I guess in that yeah, sense, really I, I might recommend it because it is funny. I don't know if it's mm. always just as funny. Like in the ways that it's trying to be, it's sort of funny because it's failing as well. Mm. Yeah, but not complete. I don't know. It's it's a really weird movie. You walk away just going, <laughs> I don't know what I just watched. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't think I could, in all good conscience, put somebody through it willingly. Mm. But <laughs> um, yeah, I think I would throw it back in there. So yeah. Sorry, Wes. Yeah. Sorry, Wes. <laughs> yeah. Let me just um, <clears throat> attach these crocodile clips. No more, Mister Nice Guy. Take that back uh, down there. Uh, yeah. Oh dear. Oh. I mean, I I will give credit to to Wes Craven and at least trying to do something different. You know, at least you know pushing the boundaries of horror. And the soundtrack gave us the best White Snake song that's not written by White Snake that we've ever heard. Okay. We'll Even take your though, word for yeah, it. <laughs> definitely take your word for it. I mean, you listen to The Still of the Night and then you listen to The Awakening by Voodoo X and you tell me that that's not a complete mirror image right there. Right. So. I don't know what any of that okay. means. But I'll... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So, Melinda, where can people follow you and hear more of your <laughs> your insights into late 80s horror and metal gems like this one? <laughs> well, uh, you can find me at Retroblasting. We are now doing live streams on the first Saturday of every month, so I will generally be there. And soon, after Iconicon, you will find me also restarting my Dreamland podcast with Ooh. a very special new co-host. Is this is this yeah, the, so I, uh, the big announcement? Yes. <laughs> so I don't know if we're ready to make that announcement yet, but uh, yeah. So I, that's that's where you'll be able to find me. It's it's sort of on hiatus right now, but I'm thinking probably August, like summertime, we're gonna have it back up and running. So I'm excited about that. Yes. Ooh. And it's almost like Star Trek The Next Generation in that all of a sudden there's some stupid English guy on the bridge. <laughs> I love that English guy. 
<laughs> Took people a while to warm up to him, though. So let's see how it goes. <laughs> That's true. What I mean, yeah. I don't know. I liked him from the outset. It was just the horrible costuming that I didn't like. <laughs> yeah. But you don't have that problem. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Hopefully, I'm not picking up my crotch <laughs> during the entire. No body run. condoms for you, and you'll be just fine. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> And if you want to follow us, we are Movie Oubliette on all social platforms, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Reddit, and uh, you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on films for us to cover in future episodes and get access to extended portions of the show. And for $5, you get access to our exclusive minisodes and exclusive extra-long interviews with our special guests. Yes. And merchandise-wise, we are on Redbubble, and you got to check out these uh, Retro Blasting t-shirts. <laughs> they are amazing. I've never been characterized on a t-shirt before, so a huge, huge uh, privilege to have that being done. Uh, so, yeah, Redbubble for all your merchandise needs. That's yes. right. And nobody's guessed which characters we are yet. Did so. I say Retro Blasting? I meant to say Iconicon. God damn it. <laughs> It's on the Retro Blasting store, though. It yes, is on our store. That's true. So, yes. Yep. I, I yeah. thought that's what you meant. I don't even think I said <laughs> yeah. YouTube when I said where you can find me because I'm not really technically anywhere right now. I'm hanging in a vortex. <laughs> anyway, whatever. People know who I am. <laughs> we'll include links. <laughs> yes, yes. So, of course, Conrad, the question is, what are we doing next episode? Well, our patrons actually voted on which film we would do after you revealed your stash of oubliette films on Twitter, (laughs) which generated a lot of interest. So I listed uh, all the sci-fi films from your stash Mm -hmm, that people mm -hmm. were commenting on uh, because we should do a sci-fi next. And uh, the one that came out tops was the 1995 cyberpunk film Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, I have not seen this movie since I was a teenager. So looking forward to some (laughs) Keanu Reeves action. Yes, Keanu Reeves just before The Matrix in a very similar film as I seem to recall. Yeah, I I can't really remember it. No. One of them changed the face of action sci-fi movie making for the next decade. And then there was this one. <laughs> so yeah. this is in the oubliette. This is what we're going to watch. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I, think, I think we're going to, I'm going to have to include this as a childhood nostalgia film because mm. this, this has a lot of that for me. Like I do remember watching uh. it a few times as a teenager. But not since. Right. Okay. Well, it should be fun to revisit. So we have Keanu Reeves, Dolph Lundgren, Takashi Kitano, and Ice T. Of course. <laughs> course. It's the 90s. You've got to have a rapper movie. in there. <laughs> You've got to have a rapper in there somewhere. So, yeah. Cannot wait. Directed by Robert Longo. Yeah. Keen to revisit my childhood. Can't wait. Again. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Thanks again, Melinda, for joining us on yet another episode. Until next time, listeners. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.
Bitch. You got it, baby.